1: Hey, welcome to Stuff
0: to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault, this time for an interview episode that we did with one of our favorite recurring guests on the show, Mara Hart.
1: That's right, Dr. Mara Hart, author of Sex in the Sea. She's the only four-time... Uh, interview guest on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and she appeared uh, last year because it was, you know, it's, it's February, Valentine's Day, a great time to talk about snails having sex with each other, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this year, we're, uh, we're sharing it again the day after Valentine's, so, you know, it seemed seemed ideal. Let's dive right in.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
0: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, do we have a treat for you today. We have a special guest, four-time podcast guest, Dr. Mara Hart, marine biologist, extraordinaire, and author of Sex in the Sea. She's back. That's right. Yeah, we. she was on three times before. She
1: ta- One episode, she talked about the Osadoc's bone worm. Uh-huh. Another episode, she talked about uh, sharks and shark reproduction. And then another episode was all about coral
0: and the reproductive uh, strategies of coral. Man, marine reproduction is just one of those endlessly deep, endlessly rich, endlessly fascinating subjects like you never run out of weird, fascinating stuff to talk about when it comes down to getting busy in the... The ocean That's right I mean, we, keep, we keep covering it on the show here and of course that is the, the central topic in Mara's book Sex in the Sea. Now, for those of you out there who haven't heard our previous episodes with uh, Dr. Mara Hart, we should uh, introduce her a little bit. That's right. Dr. Mara Hart is research co-director for Future of Fish, uh,
1: and her work has appeared in Scientific American, The American Prospect, uh, Yale E360, Creation Care Magazine, uh, Scuba Diver Magazine as well. And uh, again, she's the author
0: of Sex in the Sea, which is available now in all formats. You know, actually, we just finished talking to Mara, and uh, so she emailed us right after we finished talking and said, like, hey, one more thing. Can you remind the people? And absolutely we can. So that extra thing is that Dr. Mara Hart will be giving a talk at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on Valentine's Day this year. So February 14th, 2019, Uh, you should look into it. It'll be uh, for those of y'all in the Denver region. We know there are quite a few of you out there, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, supposed to be a really cool event with cocktails, apps, uh, book talk and signing. If you're a Colorado person, you should check that out. All right. Without uh, further ado, let's chat with Mara Hart. Hey Mara, welcome to the show. Uh, So for listeners who haven't heard the other episodes you were on, could you go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. My name is Mara Hart, and I'm a marine biologist and research director at the nonprofit Future of Fish. And I'm also author of the book Sex in the Sea, where I explore all the weird and wild and wonderful sex habits of marine life and how humans impact those behaviors and what we can do to help create more sex friendly oceans.
0: So Mara I just read this book for the first time and uh I loved it it was full of fascinating <laughs> stuff I mean it really really great and it, I guess it's uh I right. mean the sea is full of fascinating reproduction itself and one of the, the fact that stuck with me the most actually I think just because this is something that people actually tend to put in their mouths without knowing what it is is that <laughs> uni is gonads I had no idea
2: Yeah I know right and um it's it's one of these things that we, we do, right, with especially ocean animals and s- seafood. You know, we call things fish, or we call things, you know, uni, and, and we don't know what the part is. And half the time, we don't even know what the animal is that we're eating, what species it is. So yeah, uni's unis gonads. And I actually <laughs> have a question for any chefs that listen to your, your podcast, whether or not it's male or females because sea urchins have separate sexes. And so I don't know whether or not like male gonads make better uni or female gonads make better uni and whether they screen or it just doesn't matter.
1: Now, I, it's been, a, I guess, a three years since I, I read the book for the first time. So I'm blanking a little bit on, on uni. Like where, where, where am I encountering this uh, in my uh, restaurant uh, going uh, experience? Oh, it's sushi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's sushi. It's a specific it's, item on the sushi. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep, and normally it's in the fancier sushi places. It'll actually be served in the sea urchins. So sea urchins are they look like big um, spiky balls? They're sort of just giant round organisms. They're related to sea stars and sea cucumbers. And what they do in the restaurants is they tend to kind of chop off the top. And then they'll serve it in the the test, or or it's kind of like the shell, but it's called the test for the sea urchin. And they have spines all over them. And then the uni is normally like a bright orange color, and it's sort of a I don't know what would you say the consistency is, Joe? It's like a sort
0: of like a creamy roe, if you imagine mm -hmm. like a very like uh, like like salmon egg roe, except with tighter tighter spherules, whatever you call those, And, and like a creamy texture,
2: huh? Like cream of wheat almost, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, and it is the, the equivalent of roe, except, you know, in fish, we, we eat the roe, which are the eggs. We don't, we don't eat the male gametes, the, but in sea urchins, that's my question is I think uni can be either male or female gametes. So anyway, standing question to anybody, any of your listeners who might know the answer to that, if they're sushi aficionados or, or chefs, um, please let me know.
0: Well, it makes me wonder, are there other animals we're eating the gonads of without knowing about it?
2: Oh, it's a good question. You know, I will fully claim that I'm a vegetarian, so I'm not going to be the right one to answer that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I I think there I think there definitely are. And certainly it's a a delicacy in in some cases. Right. Like. um, But, yeah, I I can't I can't speak in detail, but I'm, I'm sure um, I'm sure
1: it happens. <laughs> uh, Mari, if, if you don't mind me asking, um, uh, concerning vegetarianism, I know a lot of the work that you do, uh, has to do with, uh, uh, sustainable seafood and, uh, and, and, and certainly, uh, you're, you you have this connection with, uh, marine biology. Did, uh, did either of these, uh, were, were these factors in, in you choosing a, a vegetarian, uh, diet?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I'm one of the rare, uh, I think folks who gave up fish before I gave up cow, I was totally happy eating burgers and chickens (laughs) and everything for quite some time. Um, but it was, it was when I was, I got certified to scuba dive at 12 and after I started diving and just seeing the animals on the reef, I, I just didn't want to eat them anymore. And I loved, I grew up eating tons of seafood. Um, I'm from the East coast, Northeast and yeah, lobsters and cod and gosh, everything you can imagine. Um, but yeah, I just sort of lost, lost interest. Um, I just prefer seeing them, seeing out, seeing them out there in nature. And now given my work, I'm, I'm actually, it's, it's sort of ironic cause I'm a huge proponent of people eating seafood because I think it's actually the more sustainable, um, choice in terms of animal protein, certainly better in terms of carbon footprints and water footprints than eating land-based, uh, animals. But, uh, for me personally, I just still, yeah, still don't, don't go for it, but I do miss it. I mean, I, I, the rest of my family is not vegetarian. So I'm surrounded by really good seafood a lot of the time and certainly through my work and it is tempting, but at the same time, I just sort of, Yeah. I just sort of figure I can let somebody else let somebody else enjoy it. And and, uh, that's another way that I can try to help bring them back.
0: I bet it's interesting to eat seafood around you where you
2: have a lot of (laughs)
0: things to say that would kind of make people maybe stop chewing for a second.
2: I know I try to I try to pick my fun facts wisely so that I don't put anyone off their meal. Um, (laughs) I've, I've definitely misjudged sometimes and thought something that was really interesting wound it, you know, winds up kind of grossing somebody out and I'm like yeah but it's fascinating that your oyster can change sex. That's not a bad thing. That's just really cool. You don't know, you know and people are like, "They do what?"
0: <laughs> you know, one thing um that your book really made me think about is that I find when talking to people, one of the most common misconceptions about evolution that I find is a question of emphasis about like where natural selection happens. I think People tend to focus almost entirely on survival advantages when they're thinking about what natural selection is and don't think nearly enough about reproduction advantages. And uh, and when we, when we do think about reproductive uh, advantages, it's very often in this kind of outdated Victorian style you talk about in the book where it's all about big, strong males fighting for access to females, which, of course, as you say, is only a tiny sliver of how reproductive uh, selection takes place. Do you think it's the case that studying nature more closely kind of inherently leads a person to think less about violence and survival and more about sex and to think about sex in a more <laughs> complex way?
2: I hope so. <laughs> I do. I mean, so, you know, in all fairness, survival obviously is still a, a massive driver. And as I as I mentioned in the book, in several places, one of the challenges is that if an animal is or a population is facing a threat, um, you know, either pollution or overfishing or disease, bleaching events in corals, and they're stressed out, then successful sex and sex in general tends to take a back seat, right? And the same happens with with us. If we're if we're you know really tired after a long work day, you know, sex isn't always top of mind. Um, so it is survival is really important. But I do think that the more we can understand how much the drive to reproduce and how much the um, need for reproduction governs behaviors in in wildlife, the more one we can understand um you know, how these systems work and therefore what our impacts can be. But also I do think it, it lends a nuance to how we think about our own behaviors and how we think about, um, our own societies and and what it is that we are, um, being motivated by and, 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 and also those power dynamics, like you said, those, it just helps us to question any, um, reference or, or cultural sort of, um, carryover that, you know, may have been based on old norms and, and reconsider what, you know, what is quote unquote natural and what is quote unquote common or average. Um, because I, I, and especially in the oceans, I think the subject of sex is, is one of the best ones to do that because it's just truly in anything goes kind of a space. Um, it is so creative and so innovative, It's um, it's mind boggling. And we're and we're continuing to to see new things that we never thought of um, all the time.
1: Now, on that note, I think we chatted with you last uh, in 2017 Uh, in in the last year or so. uh, Have there been any particular um, new discoveries or breakthroughs in understanding uh, marine reproduction um, that 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 really stuck out to you that you'd like to share?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. So. Last year, one of the coolest things, and for everyone listening out there, please g- go straight to YouTube <laughs> and look up anglerfish sex, and oh. you will find a video and like, turn all the lights off in your room, <laughs> put it into full screen mode. If you can pull it up on your TV, do so, and just watch. It is unbelievable. There's footage of a living deep sea anglerfish and she has these um really long tendrils that are are coming off of her body and they're almost um luminescing they're they're these like kind of glowing filaments that are extending off her body you know Twice the length of her own body in every direction, and she's sort of just floating through this dark water with these sort of glowing tendrils. And then attached right at the base of her belly, right before the tail, is the tiny dwarf male oh, with yes. whom she is mating. And it is the first time we've ever seen this live. Um, you know, got got footage of these animals in in the act and it is just, it's something out of science fiction. I mean, it is so cool just to sit and watch. So that was one of the neatest things. It wasn't a new discovery so much, but it was the first time we've been able to see this. Um,
1: This is the male that that will fuse with her body, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. And I think this one, so there's, there's different um, types of relationships there. So not all anglerfish. Is it a permanent fusion? Mm -hmm. Um, I, and, and to be honest, I should go, look, I'm not sure he's definitely attached, but I don't know if it's the kind where he stays attached for life. I, I think so. Um, and if that is the case, then what's happened is his blood vessels, his tissues. I mean, everything has literally fused with the females and they are now a, a, um, like mutual organism and they, and all of her nutrients, cause he doesn't eat all of her nutrients are being shared with him and his job, um, his function is basically to, to produce sperm. So he's, he basically dissolves into a, a testes, just a giant big testes that hangs off her body. Um, that's his role. So yeah, it's a, it's a really cool video. Um,
1: and it's like a, um, you, you describe it, it almost sounds like a communications array. Um, uh, yeah, delicate, it, that's what it structure. looks
2: like. It does. And and um, I think they're still trying to figure out what what all those things are for. And if she's, you know, out there sensing um, as part of, of her way to hunt, um, you know, to feel where prey is and then lure them in with those, that glowing um, angle. That's why they're called anglerfish because she has that little lure. But um, I, I think we're still trying to figure that out. Um, I'm not. I'm not remembering exactly what they're for, or whether or whether we know. But um, I'm trying to think. The other really cool discovery um, that I just became aware of happened um, late in the year, and it was researchers over in Asia um, discovered that they put um, cameras inside a, I think it was a gray nurse shark and they discovered that. So I think we've talked about when we, when we did this show on shark sex, that there's this weird thing where, um, in sand tiger sharks, the baby embryos, the developing embryos can hatch out of their egg cases. And the two biggest one in each uterus will eat its siblings. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's um, cannibalism within the uterus, right? So it's totally bizarre. But these researchers just last year showed that it looks like the embryos can swim back and forth between the two uterus. Oh, and wow then attack. <laughs> 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 so, um, this is really, really, really different. And we didn't know that was happening and they, I, they got it on camera. This was a, a animal that was in an aquarium and they, and they were able to put Put some. I, I don't know whether it was through ultrasound or whether they used fiber optics. Um, again, you can go onto YouTube and look up shark embryo cannibalism, and and there there are in, you know videos that have been taken inside the female, pregnant female of of these uh, <laughs> voracious developing uh, baby sharks. But in this case, yeah, they swam from <laughs> one to the next, from one chamber to the other, which is. Yeah, not something we knew they could do. So that's a really cool discovery. And it and it then challenges this idea of, well, you know, in the sand tiger shark, some of the genetics were showing that really it was one male that fathered the, the two biggest embryos that seemed to survive. And we thought that maybe it was from the first mating. And um, the subsequent matings after that, then those males were really just fertilizing eggs that would ultimately just basically serve as food um, for these these original um, residents. But if they can swim back and forth, then it's, you know, does only one survive? Do they battle it out? Or is there enough that they, they are okay having, you know, one in each? It's, yeah, I, I don't know really what's happening there. So it definitely calls into question some of those strategies.
0: And so to clarify, you're saying that uh, w- w- the, this is a case where the sharks can have multiple embryos internally at the same time fertilized by different males and that those Mm -hmm. embryos can be in competition? Yeah. Wow.
2: Oh, yeah. Yep. And it might be, again, one theory, and and it's it's a working hypothesis, is that it's a way that the female might actually have more control over – the fate of her offspring in the genetic fate of her offspring. Right. So with shark mating, there's, it's pretty aggressive. Um, often multiple males, um, can, can work together to help. And we do see this in nurse sharks where multiple males will come in and kind of corral a female. And then it's pretty rough. Um, so for a female who's resisting, um, she, she can get torn up pretty, pretty badly. And, um, any of those bites or, or scrapes or things can can lead to infection, uh, costs her energy to heal uh, in some cases could could lead to to more serious conditions. So resistance is something that a female would needs to weigh. Right. If it's worth that, um, even just a, a chase to try to escape is is an energy demand. So what what one thing that could be happening with this strategy is. Uh, that we see with the sand tiger sharks, at least, is that if the first mating is with a, you know, a dominant male, and it seems like it's, she's good with it, then the subsequent matings don't really matter, right? Because those males, even though they're, they're copulating and depositing their sperm and fertilizing eggs, those later eggs are, are, those embryos aren't making it out <laughs> into the wild. And they're just, again, serving as a, a buffet for their older sibling to, to munch on. And so it might afford the the female, the ability to not, not have to worry about the mating. And so she can sort of acquiesce, but it's strategic, right? Um, we don't know, but that's one, one potential that, that could come out of that kind of a system. And so it, it, kind of gives the female the chance to to have sex and allow sex with other males without it being a consequence in terms of, of her offspring, um, which is really interesting to think about. Again, how much agency she really has, how much choice, quote unquote, she's making, we don't know, but but the system and, and some of those um, opportunities or the potential is there.
0: Okay, time to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more of our conversation with Dr. Mara Hart. And we're back. So in the past on the show, uh, we've uh, talked with you, or Robert and Christian in the past talked with you about the the osadocs, uh, sharks, and coral. Mm-hmm. But uh, in getting ready for today's episode, we uh, figured out that you wanted to talk about marine gastropods. So, yeah. uh, so are you ready to take us to the world of gastropods?
2: Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so gastropods are snails. That's a more common term. Um, They are uh, related to the larger phylum known as mollusks which include all the bivalves you know clams and mussels and oysters and also the cephalopods which squids and cuttlefish octopus and then there's a whole bunch of other really cool mollusks out there um, that are in different family groups but the snails are the, are the gastropods um, and they they are just really cool and this includes everything from the land snails that folks may see you know, in their garden, and sea slugs that you you know try not to step on <laughs> when the when the rains come, and they come out all over your your sidewalks, all the way through to abalone and conch and um, and the nudibranchs, which are shellless um, slugs that live in in the sea, but are absolutely beautiful and often come in those incredibly dazzling colors that are so fun to see if, if you're a diver. So they're a really, really diverse group. And uh, of course, that diversity includes the way that they, they reproduce. So I thought it would be fun because um, besides corals, we haven't gotten to talk too much. I guess Ossidex also are inverts, but we often overlook the cool invertebrates in the ocean. So I thought it might be a fun a fun topic.
0: Well, let's not overlook any longer. Where do you want to start?
2: Well, I let's see where could we start. Um one of my favorites uh especially when I was doing the book because I I grew up on the sh- Long Island Sound um on the shores of Connecticut. And there is a shell that you can find on the beach out there that's the common slipper shell. So it's sort of a pale pink and it's looks um kind of like if you flip it over, it looks like a, a really fat canoe. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of this domed shell. And then there's like a shelf that comes about halfway ac- across, which is why they're called slipper shells, right? Cause it, it does look like a slipper. And there are times, you know, I was just back, back East, um, over Thanksgiving and there was a full moon and it had been a really high tide and the beach was covered in these shells. I mean, it was, you couldn't see any sand. It was, there were just millions of them. And so they're, they're really, um, a a popular or easily seen snail and they have this fabulous reproductive strategy. And I think they're, they're often overlooked. Um, so we could start with them if you want, we could dive in.
1: Oh, certainly. Now, now to, to be clear, you're talking about all the shells. Are you talking about living specimens on the beach or are these like uh, the shell remnants?
2: Yeah, so it's both. So the, the on the higher part of the beach, uh, you'll often find the empty shells from the snail. But if you go down kind of to the low tide mark, or, or certainly by the water's edge, what you'll find are the living snails, and you'll always find them, or almost always, I should say, but nearly always find them in groups, and they stack up on one another, and they form these sort of wonky Dr. Seuss looking like towers. (laughs) Um, They're never, you know, perfectly straight, but they actually grow one on top of the other and sort of mold to each other's shell. And they'll stay there their, their whole lives. And then the bottom snail is the one that's attached or was attached to some substrate at some point, a rock or a pier or, you know, a jetty, something hard that it can kind of hold on to. But, um, you can see both the living and, and then just the shell, the shells are often collected, um, uh, you know, higher up on the beach, but yeah, they form these, these towers. And so that's another good way to know what you're looking at is to see if there's like a whole clump of them. They'll often grow on other shells too, other animals, but yeah, they're, they're pretty fun.
0: So, when I've seen a stack of these shells on top of each other before, I've actually mistaken it for a single shell that's like growing in a spiral. Does that make any sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, it can look like that. It can look like that. Well, so so here's what's happening. Um, You know, like most gastropods, um, the baby snail called a veliger starts off in the water column and they're sort of floating around. And then there's They're developing and they get to a point where they're like, all right, it's time for me to settle and get to the bottom. And so in the slipper shells, when they settle down as juveniles, uh, if they find a new area where there are no other slipper shells, they first develop as a male. And then they'll very quickly transition and become a female. So this is known as sequential hermaphroditism. There's sequential hermaphrodites. So hermaphrodite is, um, from, from the Greek, right? Hermes was the male God. Aphrodite is the female goddess. And you put those two together, Hermes and Aphrodite, you get her hermaphrodite. So it means an animal that has both male and female parts. Um, often we think of this for what's known as a simultaneous hermaphrodite which means that the animal has both male and female parts at the same time at once. And and we do see that in some snails and especially in, in many nudibranchs. But in the case of the slipper shell, they're sequential hermaphrodites. So they start as one sex and then transition into the other. And we see this in um, many species. Clownfish do this. Oysters do this. Um, and they can go, it can go either direction in the sea. Um, in this case, they start as males and they transition into female and so that's the first thing that's really cool is that they are, they are sex changers, which again is, is kind of novel.
0: That's amazing. So w- what triggers the change? Like what's the advantage to going from one sex to the other?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And again, depending on the species and depending on the circumstance, there can be different kinds of um, cues, but for the slipper shell, when they land or if they land and there is no other slipper shell around no other buddies then they'll start as male and do this quick transformation to a female and then as a mature female what what she will do is release a chemical cue into the water and that chemical cue is an attractant and what she's attracting are the new juveniles that might be floating around nearby and saying i'm here Come on over. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a scent trail that can lead these baby snails to her. But it also has this great um, side effect of keeping those juveniles, when they mature as males, just as she did, it actually keeps them in the male state so that they don't transition into females like she did. But instead, they attach onto her. And they remain a mature male, producing sperm to fertilize her eggs. And what they do is, as they attach, they sort of um, find a, a clean spot on her sh- on her shell. They'll put their foot down. They'll hold on, and then, like I said, with those towers, they sort of grow together. So they sort of conform. Um, to one another. And then the way that they reproduce is the male has a extendable penis, and it's actually quite long. um, And it can stretch down from his shell and reach down underneath in order to fertilize her eggs. Now, if you imagine, she doesn't just want one male, she wants lots of males because she can make a lot of eggs. And so she keeps attracting and more and more new newcomers arrive, they continue to build these towers and they can be six, seven, eight animals high. Well, if you're sort of late to the party as a male coming in on (laughs) the very top, at some point your penis cannot stretch that far, right? It is too far. Also, you now have all these males producing so much sperm that there's actually now a lot of competition to fertilize those eggs. So what happens is the male that's closest to the female will transition into female.
1: Oh, mm-hmm. oh wow. And then that so allows someone up the, the chain to be able to reach her. Up the chain
2: to reach. And for that male, the advantage is, well, rather than my sperm competing with all these other guys to fertilize a limited number of eggs, I'm going to swap over and become a female and may get all my eggs fertilized because there's tons of males now so my sperm's not needed and as a female i can ensure because we got this nice big tower of males that all my eggs will be fertilized so my reproductive output is up i will i will gain from this and so they can transition. And so when you're looking at a a tower, the next time you're looking at this tower, um, you know, the bottom one's definitely a female. And then depending how big that tower is, the second, the second one, maybe a female, maybe even the third. Um, and it's something that's a sort of a quote unquote work in progress, depending on how, how tall these towers grow. And <laughs> one, one of my favorite parts about all of this is, you know, I, again, I grew up knowing that these were slipper shells. And as I was writing the book and learning about this strategy and just how, um, you know, how funky it is and, and the way that they do this uh, amazing reproduction, it occurred to me that um, it, their name gives it away in, in Latin. The scientific name is Crepidula fornicata <laughs> so they're the, the fornicating snails because those are just big sex towers which wow. is, is awesome and a great way to introduce folks especially on the east coast to to sex in the sea right right on your local beach so you can i guarantee you can go out and, and find these
0: well, there there are a couple of things uh, that are really interesting there that we could pick up on. One is the idea because I think uh, from reading your book, these are not the only organisms that can uh, change sex if the like local sex ratio is is not not optimal. Uh, yeah. But the other thing is just uh, sessile organisms with long penises, because <laughs> Rob, Robert and I just did an episode where we talked a bit about barnacles, and we we mentioned Yay. the barnacle penis, but we didn't go into any depth on it. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, no pun intended. Uh, so <laughs> the, so it, it's true that the barnacle, or so, at least some species of barnacle have the longest penis to body size ratio of any animal on earth.
2: Absolutely. They're the winners. They are. Um, and it's and there's a reason for it, right? It makes sense. They are stuck. So barnacles are basically for, for folks who don't know, you know, often what we know of a barnacle is the Outer sort of test that they build, um, these sort of interlocking plates that create almost, it looks like a, a volcano, right? A, a mini volcano that are stuck on rocks or peel pilings or, um, you know, the heads of, of humpback whales. <laughs> um, but the animal is, it's a crustacean. It's related to like a shrimp. And it lies on its back and it sticks its feet out of the, the hole that it creates in this sort of volcano like structure. And it waves its feet around in the ocean currents and collects little particulates. But it's stuck there for its whole life. It can't move. Um, But barnacles are hermaphrodites, uh, most species. And so what they do is they're kind of, you know, on some rocks around a tide pool and they decide they want to reproduce. They extend this incredibly long penis out the hole and they sort of poke around <laughs> the tide pool, sort of reaching around to see, you know, is anybody else open for business? And can I, can I come in? And so clearly the longer the reach, the more, um, fertilization they can achieve, the more reproduction they can have. So you can, I almost picture it like when I fly, um, and you look down over the central U.S. and you see those big crop circles uh-huh. where the water you know, sweeps around. It's kind of like <laughs> that, right? They're just sort of sweeping around with their sperm, fertilizing this area.
0: They've got a penis radius.
2: It's, it's a penis radius. But here's the thing, right? Because there's always a catch. The longer your penis, the more it's out there, the more drag and the more vulnerability you have, especially in a water environment and the intertidal environment where barnacles tend to be found, it can be pretty rough. And so if you have waves coming back and forth and slashing over you, barnacles, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sharp environment and, and you, you could risk, you know, having something shorn off and that's not, not always so nice to have happen, right? (laughs) You don't really want that. So we, there's been some really cool experiments showing not only that the barnacles have these incredible ability to extend a very, very long phallus, but it's, it's malleable, it's changeable. So if, if you have barnacles that are in a really calm lagoon environment, their penises will be very long, very thin and kind of stretched out and, and can kind of sweep really far, but if you move them to a rougher environment, an environment where there's a lot of wave activity, it it'll sort of shorten and thicken, right? They'll become more stout, <laughs> and and they'll adjust it so that it's not at risk to to the environment and into the the um, sort of rough waters, and they'll have to give up, um, you know, some of that reach in exchange for being a little bit thicker and 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 sturdier in order to deal with. Um, literally like the sheer (laughs) that's in the environment, the, the forces that they have to battle. So I always say props to barnacles for not only length, but they've got, you know, changeable penises, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is on top of just how, how fascinating it, uh, I, I found barnacles in, in researching this, uh, this previous episode. I, 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 it's one of those creatures that, you know, you, you know, that they accumulate on, on shore rocks and certainly on the hulls mm-hmm. of ships, but I, I never really realized to what extent they accumulate on the hulls of ships. Like there's the sheer biomass that can accumulate yeah. there.
2: It's a, it's a big deal. Um, in fact, Related to back to snail sex, um, there was an incident. I'm trying to remember. I think it was like in the 70s, um, where they the in the shipping industry had, had created a type of paint, you know, that they paint the bottom of boats with, often with with biofouling compounds, you know, mm-hmm. to, to or anti biofouling compounds, right? So that things can't grow.
1: Yeah, essentially and, like putting poison in the paint.
2: Yeah, it's basically a poison in the paint that, um, that helps to, um, make sure animals can't, um, accumulate, right. Won't, won't attach there. Um, and so the, (laughs) the problem was that there was a toxin in this paint that was starting to affect marine life. And in particular, it was showing up in snails. And what was happening was it was triggering growth, like abnormal growth of penises in female snails. Huh, yeah. and, and the female snails, what was happening was it's pretty kind of awful to think about, but the penis was blocking the ability of the female to release her eggs. And so it was like creating like they were like exploding basically these snails from being blocked up and having these really weird growths. and it was also starting to impact other other animals like oysters, and so it got the attention of oyster farmers. And um, I think it was in France, in, in the Mediterranean in particular, where, where some of these signals started. And so it was a it was a huge problem, and they wound up having to change the chemical compounds in the paint in order to um, you know stop having this effect. And they were able to do so, and it, and it was able to clean up, and and um, the the snails sort of. Next generation seemed to to write <laughs> write their their strange uh, parents' anatomies, and 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 the next generation sort of was was fixed. But it uh, it was yeah, you know, it was this crazy reaction again, where a pollutant that we had put into the environment was having this bizarre effect on on the reproduction in these snails. But the reason we were using the pollutant was to keep things like barnacles off the bottom of the boats because they are such a problem.
0: That's a real sci-fi movie scenario, a plague of anomalous (laughs) penises.
2: (laughs) It was. And just like the fact that they like were blowing up, you know, exploding, it was just like, oh man, that's a, that's a gnarly end.
0: (laughs) So uh, I was just wondering something when you were talking about uh, like barnacle penises, like do we know what drives the different kinds of strategies that a that an immobile organism could have like that because some like you talk about in the book some immobile organisms would just like broadcast their sex cells right you could just like release gametes into the water and hope they get into another nearby organism or you could have you could like grow a really long penis and try to do internal fertilization on your neighbors what what right. makes an organism choose between those two strategies
2: It's a a really good, um, it's a really good question. So some of some strategy is sort of quote unquote choice, but there's also the limitations of your evolutionary history. Right. Mm. And so.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional
0: terms. Visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: With crustaceans, they tend to—they have external fertilization, but the females tend to um, carry eggs around, like lobsters and crabs. Right? They, they the females ha- hold the eggs near them. The males have to to reach the female to fertilize those eggs. Um, it's different than in—it's—it's a, it's a different approach overall than in animals like. Um, corals that can broadcast spawn or sea urchins, you know, similarly. So some of it's the limitation of the fact that uh, that's j- the barnacle is a crustacean and it's, it, it does not broadcast spawn, um, and cannot, and, and it has this appendage. And so the challenge was that by being a sessile crustacean, it had to figure out how to get that appendage to <laughs> to kind of work in this strategy. And, and that's the direction evolution took, um, but it is true that across these different kinds of organisms that don't move, we, we do see a whole variety. but most of them do broadcast spawn. Normally, it's that they if you're stuck in in place, you you do release your eggs and sperm into the water, and it's about timing that release. or for those animals that can move a tiny little bit like sea urchins or abalone. They try to huddle up um, and then release into the water so that they can try to increase the, you know, the density of their sperm and eggs. But um, it, a lot of it comes down to, you know, ultimately, what's the evolutionary baggage that you have to work with?
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with more of this interview.
0: All right, we're back. Now, uh, speaking of density, uh, one thing we could come back to with the idea of uh, marine gastropod sex is like density dependent sex, the sort of the undersea orgies. Do you you want to talk about that a little bit?
2: (laughs) Yeah, of course. So it's really interesting Um, what we see. And and we see this actually in in a couple of species that are really um, popular for for seafood. So um, abalone is one. Um, and abalone, sometimes people get it confused and think it's a bivalve because it it does have that very flat, um, shell on top, but it's a single shell. And if you look closely at it, it is that spiral. And so for those who aren't familiar, it's sort of a, a, um, like a, a very gentle domed snail that can be, you know, they can be bigger than, than the, you know, the palm of your hand and they have those holes, kind of a series of holes that come onto the top. And that's where the animal will let go its waste and pull in um, water. And they have that beautiful, the inside of their shell is um, mother of pearl. It's that lacquer that's sort of iridescent. And so for centuries, uh, people have collected and eaten abalone and they've also um, collected the shell uh, for jewelry and trade and all sorts of things. And during the 19... Fifties, sixties, seventies, off of the coast of California in particular, abalone were harvested in extraordinary numbers—just um, thousands of tons of abalone. There's there's these incredible photos of abalone divers like leaning up against piles, you know, mountains of abalone shell behind them. You know, divers would take hundreds a day um, in some cases.
1: Am I remembering this correctly? Where to, co- to collect one of these, you would have to flip it off the rock really quickly. And there's yep. a danger in having your, your, your finger, um, like suctioned to the rock by the abalone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. they they have an incredibly strong suction and in they, they would latch onto rocks in the inner tidal where it could be really rough. Mm. So it, it was a, a pretty precarious, um, sort of exercise to go and, and get them off the rocks and using knives to kind of try to um, cut the seal, basically uh-huh. to try to get under there and cut the seal. And there there were times when folks, you know, um, I don't remember whether folks could get like their fingers sucked under the abalone and stuck there. But I think it was more that you're in this really rough environment and you're trying to get these these shells to release and and you know definitely could get bashed around also as you as as the shallows got picked um and there were fewer abalone that's when your hard hat divers came in right who would start going deeper and deeper with these long hoses up to up to the surface which of course is um, not the safest <laughs> technique, right. and they would be down there, um, trying to, to hunt for abalone. And again, same thing, you know, trying to work to get them off the rocks. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely hazardous. Um, but the thing is, is we, we knew at the time science knew that abalone produce over one season, billions of sperm and eggs. They are extremely fecund, right? They, they, they just have a incredible amount of gametes that they can release. And so the assumption was surely an animal that's making billions of sperm and eggs. Those, there's going to be plenty of offspring to re- replenish what we're taking. And abalone are single sex. So there's male and females. And the assumption was that they could, they could handle the, the fishing pressure and that there was enough out there. What wound up being um, the case was that while there was enough total abalone, you know, the numbers might have been high enough, they started to become too far apart. So science um, was able to show, unfortunately, a little bit late in the game, that if you separate an abalone more than about a meter or two, so, you know, three to six feet, which, you know, really isn't that far. Yeah uh, fertilization success goes down drastically. And so what, what happened was there was this serial depletion. So there's multiple species of abalone and in California, they're named sort of kind of for their color and there's reds and pinks and greens and blacks, and then the white abalone and the white tended to be the deeper ones. And, um, so they were hit sort of last, um, but they were also hit really hard. And so the white abalone still to this day, its it was the first uh, invertebrate that made it onto the endangered species list. It is still on the endangered species list. And it's the case that uh, without intervention at this point, it is unlikely that that that, that species will very likely go extinct. Um, there are just almost none left in the wild that we can find. And so it's a it was a, one of these things where, again, density dependence isn't something that we have to worry about in mammals, right? The, the individual success of an, of the individual sexual success does not depend on whether you're in a small group or a highly dense group, right? It's just two, two individuals just need to get together. Um, so whether you're in a country town or a big city, your, your fertilization rate doesn't change, but In many invertebrate populations, many fish populations, they need to have a critical mass and close enough. You know, you have to have your neighbors near you in order for sex to work. And we missed that with the abalone. And so their populations tanked and and remain in in pretty critical state, especially for for the white abalone. Um, There is a good news story, though, that comes with it. Do you guys want to hear that? Of course (laughs) we want to hear it. No,
0: No, just leave us with the bad news. (laughs) No,
2: no, we can't. So um, there's an effort. um, The California um, Department of Fish and Wildlife has a white abalone recovery plan underway. And they've partnered with several different institutions, including the Bodega Bay Marine Lab. And a wonderful woman by the name of um, Kristen Aquino, has been working there for years to try to rear white abalone, to raise them um, in the lab, and so they were able to get a few white abalone out of the wild. They started a captive breeding program, and at first they they had you know fairly good success. Um, so this was back in the early 2000s, and then unfortunately. Um, a disease epidemic came through and I think it was around 2002 and it wiped out like 90% of all the captive bred white abalone. Oh no. Um, It absolutely decimated and they had years where they struggled to bring the population, you know, to get the numbers back up and also to keep the facilities um, clean from this disease. It's a, I don't know if it's a virus or a bacteria, it's called withering withering syndrome Hmm. and it's um, some sort of, you know, pathogen that just wrecks havoc on the shells and, and, and makes it impossible. You know, the animal eventually sort of shrivels up and and dies. And so it, it took from, I think it was like 2002 or three until I think almost 10 years. And Kristen was one of the, the ones who was there in the lab on the night that they were actually able to, for the first time, um, fertilize get male and female abalone to spawn get that spawn together um bring the gametes together and actually create fertilized embryos that then settled into juvenile abalone's it was like a 10-year period where there was this gap but since then over the last you know five six years You know, it started where they got, I think, like 20 individuals the first year and then like 100. And now I think they're up around five to eight thousand, maybe even ten thousand that they're able to produce every year. And um, so. We've, we've figured out um, how, to, how to get them to spawn in the lab. There's all sorts of things they need to do to control temperature and light and sort of trick the abalone into thinking it's it's go time all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, diet, you know, is really important. So they've put in extraordinary effort into understanding the techniques and, and systems that need to be in place. And they've had um, really, really good success in the last few years. And so fingers crossed that this continues, um, they'll they'll be able to start out planting these individuals back into the wild, and the hope is to be able to um, sort of fill in those gaps so that this the individuals that are still out there won't be so few and far between.
1: Well, and again, this is with a species that that early on uh, people made the, the, the assumption that it was essentially going to be like the rabbit or the the, yes. the 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 rat of the sea, as opposed to the panda of the sea when it came to exactly. reproduction.
2: Exactly, you know. Again, billions billions of sperm and eggs. You, you would never think that they would have a problem making, making babies. So another thing to think about as we were talking about slipper shells, but also this pollution and, and the strange impacts it has is the ability for some of these species to change sex depends on these chemical cues, right? That's how they're communicating. It's pheromones or some sort of compound that they're releasing in the water that says, okay, you know, it's you know, all you juveniles out there come stack up on me or, or, Hey, don't transition to female. I need you as males. Um, and so when you think about our impacts and again, our unexpected impacts, when we put pollutants into the environment, those, those chemicals can, either mess with those signals in the sense that they can, they can change the, the chemistry and, and make it hard for animals to read those signals, or it's like putting something really smelly out there, right? And they could be masking those signals. The other thing that can happen is, and we're seeing this with ocean acidification, is so when, as the climate warms, as we put more CO2 from burning fossil fuels out into the atmosphere, the oceans are sucking that all up. They're the major sink for CO2. And when CO2 reacts with seawater, it changes the chemistry and lowers the pH. So the oceans are becoming more acidic, more towards a lemon. Um, not that extreme, but it is the, the acidity is going, going up um, and the pH is going down. What that means is that these chemical messages that pass through seawater, we don't know how they're going to be affected because the medium, the water through which they're passing, that chemistry is changing and that's going to interact with that signal. And so there's all of these um, unknown effects of things like ocean acidification or chemical pollutants in the marine environment because they're subtle, often they're dispersed at first, so they're really hard to measure. But what we know is that animals are highly dependent, especially for sex, on chemical signaling, um, whether it's for sex change, whether it's for like we see in lobsters, where females seduce really aggressive males and turn them into gentle lovers through the power of their pee, yeah. that they spritz pee in their face, and, and that's how they sort of seduce their, their mate. So these chemical signals are are critical for successful sex and successful reproduction. And, um, you know, pollution and climate change are major, major impacts and and disruptors um, to the chemistry of the sea. And and we don't know what kind of impacts that's going to have.
0: Yeah, it seems like especially in the sea. I mean, maybe it's not different than than on the land, but it seems like especially in the sea, there's so much like delicate communication involved. It just seems.
2: Yeah, it is. It's really true. You know, we're we're very visual. Yeah, as humans, we're we're visual creatures. I mean, there there are some weird studies, though. I don't, <laughs> and weird things have. I shouldn't say weird. Um, there are some interesting studies and things happening. I don't know if you guys have heard of these. Um, oh gosh, what are they even called? <laughs> like these T-shirt parties. Have you guys heard about this? No. Oh, wait a (laughs) second
0: now. Is this the thing where you like smell a t-shirt that a guy has been wearing? Yeah.
2: And I can't remember the name of them, but they're, they're basically like singles can go out and you wear a t-shirt for a few days and then you bring (laughs) your t-shirt to the party and everybody i don't know if you're blindfolded or i guess you just don't know who's whose t-shirt is whom and you go around and you sniff t-shirts and you decide which person you want to talk with based on which t-shirt smell is attractive to you it's like
1: a smell-based uh, speed dating kind of it thing. is it's <laughs> okay.
2: smell-based speed dating and so you know that is a that is a pheromone right that's a chemical way that we're deciding what's attractive and um I, you know, we're a little late to the game, lobsters and, and and conch and slipper shells have been using that for, for ages. Um, I guess we're just becoming conscious of it, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, it works for us too. So it is, it's, it's a really important mechanism. Um, well, this
0: thing about like the, (laughs) the chemical signals and the complexity makes me think about, uh, what I was asking earlier about, uh, people only thinking about evolution in terms of survival and and less so in terms of reproductive advantage and and I I wonder if one of the reasons for that is just like the visual access we have to like a chase for survival. You can watch a documentary and very clearly see what's happening when one organism chases and tries to catch another. And when you look at some kind of, uh, you know, reproductive process going on under the ocean, a lot of times it doesn't look like anything. You can't see it or oh, if you yeah, can see it, you can't understand what's going on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I And I think – you know, like we were talking about, you you can't see cannibalistic embryos swimming back and forth right inside a pregnant shark. There's so much that we, we miss, even when we can see the organism. Mm -hmm. And then most of these organisms, we just, we never even see, um, or we don't know what it is we're looking at. I mean, one of the, another great example in in snails and nudibranch are these hermaphrodites that are simultaneous hermaphrodites, right? So rather than like the slipper shell, these are animals that are both, have both male and female organs at the same time. So they produce sperm and they produce eggs. And there's one that, um, in particular is, is really unique in that as far as we know, or as far as I know, um, it's the only animal that has a disposable regrowable penis. (laughs) So it's like a penis Pez dispenser. Okay. So, um, it's, it's basically what happens is they're, The two individuals will kind of come up to one another and they'll sort of feel along each other's edge and they'll actually explore the the genital opening on each other. And then they will turn to face in opposite directions and line up and then they will simultaneously insert each of them will insert their penis into the other snail um, into their opening and deposit sperm. So it's like a mutual reciprocal mating and it all seems very you know civilized and great (laughs) takes a takes a little bit for it to happen and then the two animals will start to pull apart and the penis is like basically they just like stretch like two rubber bands between the (laughs) animals and they stretch and they stretch and they stretch and they stretch and then they just sort of like pop out. Ooh. And so then the the each snail has like their like it's kind of like you know when you when you were little and you used to play with slinkies and then the slinkies got really stretched and they never kind of bounced back. <laughs> right. It's kind of like that, right? They've got this like long extended phallus that's dragging behind them that they can no longer like recoil. So they just drop it. And within a day, the next penis is ready to go. It's like they have, I think it's like two or three backups. Um, And for two to three days, they can mate, they can mate, they can mate. And then they have to take a longer break for it to regenerate. But what researchers found was while this all looked like very, like, I don't know, civilized, sort of a fair kind of... um, you know, mutual mating, Mm -hmm. it turns out that part of the reasons why they have to drop the penis and they can't pull it back inside their own bodies is because if you look under a microscope, the heads of the penis are covered with these like hooks, these sharp thorny hooks. And what happens is when they insert into their mate, they let go a stream of sperm that can kind of like flush to the front or deep inside the the animal into their mate. And then they pull with these hooks back out. And while they may grab some of their own sperm, what they're doing is trying to like clean out and get rid of any previous sperm deposits from a different mating event and so they kind of scrape the inside out and because of that yeah it's pretty it's you know kind of gnarly but because of that they don't want to retract that back inside their own body right because that's that's just not gonna turn out well so they just drop it huh. and grow another so it's really but you would have no idea if you saw these two you know pretty colored neuterbran kind of sitting next to one another hanging out. That amazing that's what was going on. You, you can't you can't <laughs> see it and you have no idea that you know a few hours later they'd regrow their penis it's yeah you're right it's not stuff we can see so um, that's why we need more science and we need more scientists and we need more funding to support this kind of just basic research um because it's fascinating and it matters for how how these animals are surviving and you know it, In some cases, these are, you know, abalone was a major industry. It was a major food supply. It was devastating when that fishery collapsed. Um, We see something similar happening in the Bahamas right now with conch. Conch's that iconic giant snail that, you know, um, you blow on the shell and it makes that beautiful, like, kind of um, loud honking sound right. yes. <laughs> yeah. to call it. Yeah. So, so there, these are really large gastropods. They can grow over a foot and a half. They can live up to 20 years, maybe even longer. Um, but again, even though they're not broadcast spawners, um, so they, again, the male has a, a penis, uh, that it, it has to um, insert into the, into the female underneath her shell. Um, It's called the verge. The penis is called the verge, which I think is such a (laughs) cool, sexy name. Um, But you know, they have these huge shells that they kind of have to heft around. And so, It takes a lot of energy to move if you're a conch. And so they do group up and then they kind of all just like go around and sort of mate. And so, again, they need that density. They need enough conch near enough to one another that they can have enough mating events. And um, what they're finding is that in in places, the conch have, have been overfished. And even though there may be enough conch, you know, over a certain area in terms of number, they're not close enough together. They're not finding each other or there's not enough of them huddling up and they're starting to see some, some really, um, strong signals that the recruitment, so the the next generations, the numbers of, of juveniles is going down. And so it's, it's a really big problem. Um, in and, and one that would affect, you know, food security, it affects, um, you know, livelihoods. So it's not just, I mean, they're great tales to tell. Um, but there's a reason, especially for me, you know, the reason why I, I care about this topic and why I'm, I'm so passionate about it is because it matters, um, in a very selfish way. It matters back for our own, um, our own benefit as, as people, um, in the communities that depend on, on these fisheries.
0: We depend on the delicate balance of marine ecosystems for the for the food we eat and the air we breathe, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, and the cool chemical compounds. You know, we've talked a lot about that, but you know, there are trials right now um, for anti cancer compounds, uh, compounds, medicinals that are helping fight uh, neurological disorders, heart disease, all all coming from marine organisms. And, you know, it's a wealth of of resources that we we've barely begun to tap. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Well, it looks like we're about out of time here. uh, But thanks for coming on the show again and chatting with us, Mara. It's been so great to get to meet you. Oh, sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's been great to get to meet meet you, too, Joe and, and Robert. It's always such a pleasure. I love talking with you guys and. I mean, you're, you guys just cover the best stuff. I love getting on a show and you talking about... So we were talking about barnacle penises the other day. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get to have this kind of connection with, with a lot of folks. So I'm always up for it.
1: Now, if our listeners want to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to, uh, your, your website is sexinthesea.org. And uh, that has your blog on there, uh, uh, details about upcoming appearances. And then, uh, of course, the, the book itself, Sex in the Sea, is available in like every format.
2: Absolutely. We got it's on Audible, we got ebooks, we got hardbacks, paperbacks and you can get it pretty much, you know, online or in in your local bookstore.
1: Makes a great gift uh, heading into Valentine's Day for anybody out there looking for yes. the perfect uh, sciency <laughs> uh, Valentine's Day gift.
2: Yeah, you can be you can be sex, slyly sexy, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so there you have it. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Mara J. Hart for coming on the show and chatting with us once more about the weird,
0: wild world of uh, marine reproduction. Now, just one more reminder Dr. Mara Hart will be giving a talk in the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on Valentine's Day this year, February 14th, 2019. If you're in the Denver area, you should look into that. It's going to be a cool event with cocktails, apps, book talk, and signing. If I was nearby, I would not miss it for the world. Now, if you want to listen to any of the other
1: episodes in which we talked with Mara, uh, you head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast, but I'll make sure that on the landing page for this episode, we link to those older episodes as well, so you can look those up. Uh, we also, of course, have a, have a place on the website where you can click on our store. You can check out some cool merchandise options, but if you, another great way, perhaps the best way to support the show is to simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And uh, make sure you are subscribed to Stuff to Blow
0: Your Mind. And while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to Invention as well. That's our other show. Absolutely. If you like Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll like Invention too. We almost guarantee it. We're pretty confident. You go over there, you check it out, you click subscribe. You'll be happy. We'll be happy. It's a great thing to do. Anyway, huge thanks to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic or a guest for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.